I have a question that came in that I want to answer tonight if we can. So you have two outlines stapled together. On the second outline, the underlife outline, uh, there's a question about 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. So turn there if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. This is actually our, was our memory, uh, memory verse for uh, July. And somebody had a question about what this verse is actually referring to. So let's go there and let's try to answer that question tonight. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 10 if you would. The verse says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. And what Paul does here, he identifies two kinds of sorrow that a person can experience. Uh, You can experience godly sorrow, and you can also experience uh, the sorrow of the world. And each of these sorrows leads to a different outcome, a different kind of repentance. Now, we've noted many times, and you're certainly aware of this, everything about a believer is different from those who don't live without Jesus Christ. And so we find that even a true believer of Jesus Christ can have sorrow differently than a person in the world does. They actually sorrow differently than a person in the world does, or at least can sorrow differently. And the difference is based on the reason for the sorrow and on the outcome of the sorrow. What is the the end result of it? Now, here's the difference. The sorrow for believers results in repentance over what they are. Sorrow for a believer, true true sorrow, uh, results in repentance for a believer over what they are. Uh, In Job chapter 42, I'm not going to have you turn there. In Job chapter 42, uh, God appears to Job at the end of his trial. And Job responds to that as God appears to him. Uh, God responds to that, or Job rather responds to that. Here's what Job says in Job 42, verses 5 and 6. He says, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, here's what Job is saying. I've seen you. I've known about you. But now I realize by being in your presence, I realize now what I am. I realize that my ways compared to your ways are totally opposite. Your ways are holy and my ways are not. And therefore, Job says, I abhor myself and I repent. He repents over what he is. Godly sorrow from Job led him to repent of what he was. And God accepted that repentance. As we read on in chapter 42, you see that. Now, that's godly sorrow. Here's the sorrow of the world. The sorrow of the world takes a completely different approach and has a different result because of the approach that is taken. The sorrow of the world leads to repentance, but it's not repentance over what a person is. Rather, it's repentance over what that unbeliever has done. It's over their action, not what they are. It's sorrow over getting caught, not sorrow over what they are as sinners. The clearest example I can give you of that is Pharaoh uh, after, during the time of the plagues. Uh, Pharaoh repented. God sent those plagues on Egypt, and the idea was to persuade uh, Pharaoh to let Israel go. One of those plagues, if you remember, was a hailstorm. And it was a hailstorm like nobody had ever seen before, nobody has ever seen since. After that hailstorm, Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron. And the scripture says this in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 27. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said unto them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and I and my people are wicked. Now, you hear what he said? We sinned this time. We have one sin we're looking at. It's this sin. We're not looking at what we are. We're looking rather at what we did this one time. He doesn't say we're all sinners. He doesn't say we've always been sinners. What he says was in his repentance is you got us. You caught us this time. You're right. And we're wrong this time. Stop the hail is really what his point was all about. He wanted that hail to stop. Pharaoh was caught in his sin. His sorrow was not over what he was. His sorrow was over getting caught in what he had done. 
Anytime a person is sorry for their sin because of the consequences and not because of the reality reality that they are sinners, that is worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. That is worldly repentance, and that kind of repentance is worthless in God's eyes. I'll show you the difference. Here's the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Here's the sorrow of the world. I've messed up. I've made a mistake. I've ruined everything. I'm doomed. I'm a failure. I'll never do anything right. I wish I was no good. I wish I rather I'm no good. I wish I was dead. That's sorrow of the world. Here's godly sorrow. Lord, I messed up. I made a mistake. I've ruined everything. I've sinned against you. I'm not worth anything unless you do something with me and through me. I will never be worth anything unless you do a work in me and through me and with me. And so, Lord, from this point on, I'm trusting you and I'm surrendering to you and I'm going to let you live through me. Now, do you see the difference? (laughs) Lord, I'm terrible. I'm hopeless. I'll never do anything right. Lord, I'm a sinner and I sinned against you. The first confession that I gave you, that worldly sorrow, is all about the person how their sin has affected them, and how it's going to affect their life as a result. It's all about the results of the sin on them. People in the world, I'm sure you're aware of this, people of the world are excellent in saying they're wrong when their lives are affected by it. When they've gotten themselves into something, and they got caught, and their consequences coming. I worked for years as a juvenile probation officer. I would hear kids confess their sin all the time to get a lighter sentence, to keep the judge from coming down on them or to keep them from going on probation longer than they had to. Uh, Anytime a person does that, they're not confessing who they are or what they are. They're confessing, rather, what this has done to them. The spouse confesses the affair so the husband or wife won't leave. It's all about uh, getting the sentence reduced uh, by saying, I did what I did, so I don't have any more happen to me than what's already happening. Worldly repentance misses the point. Godly repentance acknowledges the sin, but it also identifies a true offended party. I am not the offended party when I sin. God's the offended party when I sin. I violated his law. We're going to talk more about that when we get to the book of James. God is an offended party. Every sin that I commit in my life, I commit against God. He is always the, the recipient of that sin. People may be affected by my sin outside of that, but they are simply innocent bystanders. And unless I confess that sin and God settles that sin, unless God cleanses me and does something through me, my life is going to be a waste because that sin is going to remain. So in godly sorrow, when I repent in godly sorrow, uh, God is the focus. He is the one who's, who I've sinned against. And when I sorrow, when I repent of that thing, what it acknowledges is that although many people may have been affected by my sin, God is the affected party. He is the offended one, God himself. And my repentance is based upon me correcting my sin so that God is no longer offended by it. Now, I want to make a quick application. We're going to move on from this. What I believe is this, and I, I've held to this belief for quite some time now. It's getting more and more solid as, I, as time goes on. I think the modern church is weak and sickly and ineffective and worldly because many of God's people have lost the concept of true godly sorrow and true godly repentance. I think they've lost the concept. I think many in the church have lost the concept that we are sinners and God hates sin. And the only thing that clears up sin in our lives is true, heartfelt, passionate repentance and forgiveness, confession and repentance. What I would love to see, and I don't know if we ever will, what I would love to see is us preach on a Sunday morning and in the middle of that message, somebody dropped to the altar because they realized some sin and they want to get it taken care of. You're allowed to do that, by the way. (laughs) 
Anytime during a message, if God speaks to you and you feel the need to get that thing settled, you can come to this altar and get it settled. Praise God for you if you do that. Nobody's going to think you're strange. I'm going to praise God that you did it, that you responded to what God was telling you to do. The problem is most of many believers simply refuse to acknowledge that sin, and it remains, and as it remains, it makes us weak and ineffective as a result. We need to confess not what we've done. We need to confess what we are. And I believe until God's people get back to that, we're going to continue to limp along in ministry and be active but not accomplish a whole lot for the Lord that he has for us to do. Now, here's the results of each of those two kinds of repentance, those two kinds of sorrow. In godly repentance, godly sorrow, the end result is reconciliation to God. For the unbeliever, it's salvation. For the believer, it's renewed fellowship. For the one who does worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow, that leads to death. Eternity in the lake of fire for the lost and loss of fellowship with God for the saved. But Either way, there's a different result based upon what you confess and how you confess and what your realizations are about your sin. So the only route to take for a believer, since I believe you're all believers here tonight, the only way to get the, tr- the real result from confession of sin is to say, Lord, I'm a sinner and my sin is against you. And I want you to change me and cleanse me and pr- help me to make the right choice next time that thing comes up. And if you'll do that, that'll settle it. And you're clean before God and you move on in your Christian walk as a result. With all that said, any thoughts, comments, questions, anything at all? Yes, Mary. Mm-hmm. It says to me is that once you get the, repent for that salvation, you're never going to go back on that. Yeah, you'll be satisfied with that salvation. Yeah. Any other thoughts, questions, anything? If not, then go to the book of James. Where the rest of our study will be for tonight. We've been doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of James that we're calling the gospel in action. And we're in James chapter 2 now. And I want to remind you of where we've been last time so you can kind of refresh. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in this book. Uh, In James chapter 2, James has given us what he has called the royal law. And the royal law that James has identified for us is that we should love others in the same way that we love ourselves. Whatever we desire for our own satisfaction or to make ourselves feel better, we should do that for others as well. If I desire respect from other people, what I do is show that same respect to them. And that's a law from God himself. So there's no getting around that law. We can't rationalize our way out of it or find some way to to skirt around that law. It's pretty difficult to miss James' point. But I want you to look at verse 9 again, if you would. He says there, well, let's read, uh, let's start in verse uh, 8. Uh, If you fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Now, here's what James is addressing. There are certain people in that people that he's talking to who are fulfilling that royal law on the surface. But when it came to dealing with rich people, they would treat those rich people with greater respect than those who are less affluent. And they were doing that in the hopes that when they had a need, those rich people would be there for them and help them with that need because they showed respect to that rich person and therefore had some ends with them as a result. And they also believed they were doing what was right because what the the thought was in this day, if God blessed the rich by giving them riches, then it only makes sense for us to do the same thing, honor them as well, because apparently God is honoring them because of the riches that he's given to them. So here we see two of the most common problems that come as a result of our human nature. Here's number one. 
Our flesh always operates with the wrong motive. My flesh, your flesh always operates with the wrong motive. Regardless of what is on the surface, beneath that is always an effort to serve self. That's all your flesh wants to do is satisfy the needs of itself. All it wants to do. And the greatest tendency we have in our lives, in our flesh, is to take care of ourselves, even though on the surface we may be following the royal law, but underneath that all, we want to see if we can take care of ourselves. They may be kind to people, but they were kinder to those who could give them something in return. And whenever our motives become self-serving, uh, we can be sure of two things. You can be sure, first of all, the flesh is in charge. And you can also be sure that following the royal law is nothing more than a cover for the real motive. <laughs> There's something going on underneath that that you're trying to cover up or get as a result. That's the first problem. Here's the second problem. The flesh always misinterprets or reinterprets what God is doing. Always. The flesh never gets it right. It always misinterprets or reinterprets. And it always misinterprets or reinterprets things that have benefit to self. Uh, these people wanted something from these rich associates. They wanted some kind of benefit from them. And so they decided that since God apparently had honored the rich, uh, they would do that as well. Uh, be very careful, folks, assessing God's blessings based on externals. Just because a person doesn't have a lot or isn't gaining a lot doesn't mean God's not blessing them. <laughs> He may not be blessing them in those kinds of ways, but God's blessings come in all kinds of ways. God's blessings are not necessarily, and really most often not, manifested in what we see. Oftentimes it's manifested in what we don't see. That's why we often miss God's blessings. Now, these folks wanted something from them, and they thought since God seemed to be blessing them, they would show the same respect to them. Now, God's blessings don't always come by what we see. But the flesh is going to do every way possible, find every way possible to justify what it wants to do. And I'm sure you have examples of your own that you give me from this past week where your flesh wanted to do something and gave you every reason in the world why you should do it. And it was all wrong. But your mind rationalized that thing to try and push you into doing that thing, even though you knew, uh, according to your spirit, that it was the wrong thing to do. Uh, we love others because that's how God loved us. No other motivation. No other gain. We love God. We love God's people. We love people, I should say, because that's how God loved us. And we love people because that is the only way that people are going to see Jesus Christ in us. Only as you love them will they see God's love manifested to them. The only way for it to happen. And we must never take something God has uh, commanded us to do and rework it so it benefits us in some way. That it completely undermines God's purpose for the command that he gave to us. And so verse 9 makes it very clear. Whenever we do that. We've sinned no matter how much we may profess that we are doing what God has commanded. And we may be even doing what God has commanded. We may be following the royal law. But you see, God doesn't assess behavior. God assesses heart and motive. Why did you do what you did? And if that motive is wrong, it's sin no matter what you're doing on the surface. It doesn't make any difference. So that law that God gives there is supposed to demonstrate God's love to others. But now it demonstrates our willingness to contradict what the law says if you violate the law as they did. One thing about this book, I'm sure you're aware of this, that book is a two-edged sword. <laughs> and you can gain God's blessing by following that law. And if you ignore that law, that book becomes your enemy. It's going to straighten you out. And you may not like how it does it, but it's going to do it. It's going to identify your sin. It's going to make sure you know what that sin was. And if you don't reconcile yourself to God in that sin, uh, that book is going to pass judgment on you. And you're going to be miserable <laughs> until you get that thing settled. That's just how it goes. That book is an amazing book. No other book does that. That's the only book that you can read that's going to convict you of your sin. 
because it's the only book that has the truth of your sin uh, all through it. So James has a Jewish audience here. And so because he has this Jewish audience, he wants to look a little closer at how God's laws actually work. And so he uses the Old Testament law that Moses was given as his example, uh, since his audience, I'm sure, is very familiar with that. So look at verses 10 and 11. It says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now, if thou committed no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. What's he saying? He says you can keep that law perfectly. I don't know what people who believe you can work your way to heaven by following the Ten Commandments do with those two verses. Because what he says, like I say, he says you can keep that law perfectly. You can follow every command as it is written. But if at any moment in your life you violate one part of that law, you're held accountable for the whole thing. (laughs) You violate one part, the whole thing becomes your condemnation. If you violate one part, you've broken all of it. So what would a person have to be if they're going to work their way to heaven? What would they have to be? Perfect. (laughs) They would have to fulfill that law from the day they were born until the day they died. Because the first time they break the law, they violate the whole thing. And they're accountable for all of it. And there's no going back because now they're not perfect anymore. There's a sin there. Even if that sin is confessed, it's broken the law. The law has been broken. Uh, You're driving up I-77. And you have the crew set on 85 miles an hour. And for some reason on that particular day, the police decide to notice you and stop you for doing that. And the officer says to you, you've broken the law because you're going 20 miles per hour over the speed limit. And you say to the officer, officer, did you know I've never stolen one thing any day in my life? I've never stolen one thing. I'm no thief. Nobody could convince me of being a thief. I've never broken the law one time by stealing. (laughs) And the officer says to you, well, that's all well and good, but you broke the law by speeding, not by stealing. You still broke the law. Regardless of how you did it, the law has been broken. That's how God's law operates, you see. He says, if you break it in one part, you break all of it. You may never have committed adultery. You may have never committed the physical act of adultery. You may have kept your minds pure and never committed adultery uh, through your thought life. But if you murder somebody, you've still broken the law. You may not be an adulterer. You're just a murderer instead. And the law is still broken. And as a result of that, James says, you are a transgressor of the law. Now, that word transgressor has a Latin root that means to go over. So what the person who transgresses is, they go over the law. They just bypass the law. They just kind of skirt over the top of it. That's what a transgressor does. Uh, They don't allow the law to stop them. They slide by it and get it past it instead. Uh, And as a result, they are at odds with the law that God has pronounced to them. So only one way for a person to work their way to heaven. If you're planning on working your way to heaven, here's how you got to do it. Don't break God's law one time from the day you're born until the day you die. Anybody here who has not broken God's law, you're in trouble. <laughs> if you're trying to work your way to heaven, you've blown it. You've got to find some other way. It's not going to work that way because you've already broken the law and you're held accountable for the whole thing. Uh, the soul that sinneth, it shall die, is what the Bible says. Transgress the law. At that point in time, you condemn yourself to death. And that's why trusting Jesus Christ is the only way to get to heaven. Because he was the only one who kept God's law perfectly. And so when he died, he did what you couldn't do and paid the price for you. And that's why the whole system works. God's got this thing all worked out, folks. I guess I know you know that because you're uh, all Bible students. But he's got it all worked out. It's just a matter of us accepting or people accepting what God has done for them. Uh, when you trust Jesus Christ as Savior, your sin becomes his and his righteousness becomes yours. 
I don't understand that, can't get it, couldn't explain it to you, but that's how it works. <laughs> and the only way to gain forgiveness by God and enter into his presence is have Jesus Christ do it for you because you've already blown it. You can't do it yourself. And there's no going back on what you've already done. So with all that said, look at verse 12. He says, so speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Now, we looked at this law of liberty before a few verses up. And we looked at the spiritual application of that. We talked about, and we have talked before in here, there are three ways to interpret Scripture. Historically, uh, doctrinally, and practically or spiritually. Three ways to do it. So there's a historical meaning to the verse, there's a doctrinal meaning to the verse, and there's a spiritual application of the verse. When we looked at the law of liberty last time, we looked at the spiritual application, the, the application of it to our lives. And what we talked about there was Paul talked about the law of liberty and so forth and the freedom that comes as the spirit of the law, the law of the spirit is applied to our lives. That's the spiritual application. That's legitimate. But doctrinally, this book, again, is written to Jews, written to Jews who are working their way to heaven in the time of the tribulation. That's what the book of James is all about. And so with this book, doctrinally, that law of liberty applies to those in a completely different way. The law of the spirit of life that saved us is based on the work of somebody else. In the tribulation time, the work that they do, or their salvation rather, is based on their own work. And so the liberty from sin during the time of the tribulation, as it was back in the Old Testament, comes as they fulfill the requirements of the law. And that's something they must consistently do from the time that they are aware of the law until the time God calls them home. Now, here's the difference between the age of the law and the age of the church. Uh, the age of the law, talking about Moses' time, and also talking about the time of the tribulation. Here's the difference. Those under the law have to maintain their righteousness until they die. Otherwise, they lose their salvation. That is what the sacrifices were all about, the animals being sacrificed and so forth. Uh, they had to make some kind of atonement for that sin that they did, and that God provided the way through the sacrifices. But for us, uh, because our salvation is not based in what we do, it's based on what Jesus Christ has already done. We have no such requirement. Jesus Christ's work in your life, folks, of salvation is an eternal work. It starts from the day you're born and goes throughout all of eternity. And you never lose salvation once you get it. There's no place that Paul talks about anybody losing salvation. I'm going to talk more about that here in just a minute. So his work is an eternal work that goes out through eternity. Those in the tribulation are going to be judged by the law. They're going to be judged, in this case, by the law of liberty. Uh, the law that says that you place faith in Jesus Christ and you keep the commandments. Need a reference for that? That's Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12. I believe that's on your outline. But in the time of the tribulation, two things going on. The faith of Jesus Christ and keeping the commandments. And the, the specific judgment that comes upon them uh, is partially how much uh, respect they show to those who are rich and can provide benefits to them. So if they choose to be partial to certain people, uh, they're violating the law of liberty, they're violating the royal law, and because of that, they've put themselves in danger. They've broken the law. Now, we're not under the law in that sense. We don't have to worry about that. Uh, not that you should go out breaking God's laws. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is, in this dispensation, in this age, you can break God's law and remain saved because your salvation is not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon him. So when you break a law... As a believer, you confess that and fellowship is restored, but salvation is never threatened by that. In the tribulation time, as it was back in the Old Testament, their salvation was threatened by the breaking of the law. Now, that's all true. But how, have you ever thought about this? Now, he's saying here that how they treat other people is going to be how their salvation is credited to them. 
Now, think about that if that were true in this day and age. Think about if it were true that I've been, that my salvation was partially based on how I treated other people in the body of Christ. Wouldn't that be interesting? I've been reminded this week that Facebook has become one of the greatest tools for a believer who wants to sow discord among other believers. Now that Facebook has become a way for believers to shoot out messages and disturb all sorts of folks and change people's minds about other people by just a post that they make. Uh, in the old days, folks, if you wanted to sow discord, you had to do a person by person. Talk to somebody who then talked to somebody who then talked to somebody. Now, if you want to sow so discord, just put a post on Facebook and shoot it out to all your friends. And you can change people's minds about somebody just by doing that. Now, what I believe I still see in Scripture is God hates sowing discord. Uh, just so you know. And if you find somebody on Facebook sowing discord, what you would, should do is what I've done. I unfriend them. <laughs> So I don't have to read it. I don't want to be a field where the seed is sown. So I just take them off my list, and I'm not on Facebook that much anyway, so it's not really a big deal. Uh, I just take them off, and by doing that, they no longer have a field to sow their seed in. But there are folks out there who want to sow discord among you and change your mind about somebody or change your mind about something, something they might even not know anything about fully, but they have an opinion about it and express that opinion on Facebook, and by doing that, change your mind. So discord. Be very careful about that and be very careful when you're receiving those sorts of things. So I just wonder how it would be. I wonder how many Christians would lose their salvation if that were possible because they chose to malign or attack or judge some other believer. We're not supposed to do any of that. Did you know that? That's not supposed to happen (laughs) among the body of Christ. I wonder how many believers on Facebook would lose their salvation if that were possible simply because of what they post on that thing that is wrong for them to post because it attacks some other believer. I wonder how many of those folks would lose their salvation as a result. Uh, You see, uh, sadly for many Christians, they have forgotten something. And I want to remind you of this tonight. Uh, We are all in the body of Christ only because of the grace and mercy of God. Nobody has position higher than anybody else. You all got here the same way. And that's why I have no right to judge you, and you have no right to judge me. You have no right to question my motives. I have no right to question your motives. Why is that? Because we're all in this body the same way. I didn't get myself into this body. God got me in. And every believer who's in the body got in the same way, by the grace and mercy of God. And so I think we need to remind ourselves of that every so often. God's grace and mercy got me into this thing. Maybe that's what I need to display to other believers. Is just God's grace and mercy and let the rest of it go. <laughs> See, that should be all the motivation we need to treat each other well. Just knowing how you got into the body should be enough to let you know, to, to, to cause you to treat other people in the body the way that God requires us to treat each other. Uh, but for some reason, people get an agenda or people get an opinion and it overpowers all that they know about what happened to them when they got saved. And they treat others in this body with partiality and with disrespect. And Jesus Christ died for all of us, including them. <laughs> yes, sir. Didn't uh, Paul describe how he had a problem with another brother and sister in Christ? He dealt with it specifically, how you're supposed to handle Actually, Jesus Christ did that in Matthew chapter 16. Yeah, Matthew 18. Yeah, laid out exactly one by one, step by step, how you do that. Exactly. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, either people don't know that or don't like the system. (laughs) They'd rather make a post on Facebook, I think. So look at verse 13. It says, For he shall have judgment without mercy, that hath showed no mercy, 
and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Now, the doctrinal application is still in place here, referring to those who are working their way through the tribulation. And we know that because the judgment referred to here is works-based judgment, and that can't be us. So the principle here, but there's a principle here that is identified for us that's true in every age. The lost people you know, whoever they might be, and whether you know them well or just come across them as you're witnessing, those folks have no concept of real mercy because they've never experienced it. Whatever they do for others, uh, genuine mercy is not part of it. There may be some mercy to it, but they don't have the full concept of mercy because they've never seen that mercy. They've rejected God's mercy when it was available to them. And because of that, they don't show real mercy. They have no way to do that. They don't have any base to work from on that. And so when they face God in judgment, listen to me, they're going to face him with none of his mercy shown to them. (laughs) No mercy whatsoever. I'm sure you've heard the question, if you've witnessed it all, how could a good God really send people to hell? As though at that point in time, God is supposed to demonstrate his goodness to them. When in fact, they have lived an entire life of God demonstrating his mercy to them. (laughs) From the day they were born until the day they died, God showed his mercy to them over and over and over. And they rejected it every time. And now that they face him in judgment, suddenly God is now supposed to be merciful to them. Scripture is clear, folks. There comes a time when God's mercy runs out. And that's the time of the judgment. And if a person walks over or ignores uh, the goodness of God all their life and then expects God to shower them with mercy when they're giving, uh, facing him in the accounting time, they're going to have a rude awakening at that point. There's going to be a lot of surprises at the judgment, I'm going to tell you. Folks expecting one thing and getting something else. The wisest person on earth is that one who accepts God's mercy while it's available. <laughs> and if you're watching tonight, don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, uh, the best thing to do is accept God's mercy now before it's too late and you can't get it anymore because he's offering it to you now. So, Scripture says God's mercy runs out at some point, and if you walk over it all your life and then expect it, it's not going to happen. Uh, the most foolish person on earth, earth tramples God's mercy. The most foolish person on earth tramples God's mercy while it's available. But I want to grab on to the last part of that verse. Look at that verse, the last part. Mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Now, if you're in the habit of underlining or circling, you might want to do that with those words. With those words, Mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Because we've trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, I am in, placed into God's eternal mercy. <laughs> Jeremiah said it this way, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And Jeremiah is speaking there specifically of God's faithfulness in terms of his mercy. God's mercy is always there because God is faithful. And so I, because I reside in God's mercy, I never face God's full judgment. That happened on the cross. That's where I experienced my judgment occurred at the cross where my sins were judged. I don't experience God's judgment anymore in that sense because I'm in the mercy of God now. I'm going to have you turn, hold your hand there in James and go to Psalm 85. Psalm 85. Uh, This is a verse that I came across uh, years ago, and it's kind of nestled in here, and it can be easily missed if you're just sort of reading through Scripture. But this is a verse that I think is one of the most fantastic verses in all the Word of God. Uh, Psalm 85. When you get there, look at verse 10. And hold on to your socks. It's going to blow your socks off if you're not careful, right? (laughs) Psalm 85.10. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Now, when you look at that verse to start with, it may, the, the, the full meaning of it may escape you. So look at what that verse is saying. 
Inside that verse are two problems that you have and two solutions for the problems that are presented to you. I'll start with the second one. One of my problems before I knew Jesus Christ was God's righteousness. That was a problem for me because, you see, I couldn't be as righteous as he was. And that was the requirement to be accepted by him. I needed to be as righteous as he was. That was impossible in myself to do that. What was the solution? Well, the solution was peace. Colossians 1.20, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, I have been given his righteousness. And because I now have his righteousness, because I now possess his righteousness, his righteousness is no longer my accuser. I've got it. It can no longer accuse me because I now match. I've got his righteousness. His righteousness is required. It's all taken care of. God no longer accuses me of that. That's the second problem. The first problem settled. Look at the second one. The second one is talking about uh, truth. I, I lost the verse here. Right? Uh, mercy and truth are met together. Mercy and truth are met together. Here's my other problem. Truth. I've got a problem with truth. Because, you see, truth tells me exactly what I am. And truth tells me exactly what's going to happen to me because of what I am. And God's judgment comes as a result of absolute truth. Because of the truth of what God says, I'm condemned. What is the, consequence, what is the solution for the problem of truth? God's mercy. God's mercy. God sees me for what I am. God says, here's what's going to happen to Sabaka as a result. But I'm going to give you my mercy. I'm going to allow my son to die for you. I'm going to allow my son to be your payment instead. So you don't have to do it yourself. I'll let him do it for you. And therefore, truth is answered by God's mercy. And so, believer, listen to me. Righteousness and truth are against you, and peace and mercy are your defense. Every believer needs to thank God every day that mercy rejoiceth against judgment. I was judged by God at the cross. I'm not going to be judged by him again for my sin. It's settled. And that's because of the mercy of God. Now, with that wonderful truth in place, I want you to turn back to the book of James. James now launches into what is probably one of the most familiar passages in this book. Now, I wonder what I'd like to do is read from verse 14 down through verse 26 to get the whole context of what he says. And then this week and also next week, we're going to walk through this step by step and try to understand exactly what James is saying to us. So starting in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food... And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee thy faith by my works. Believest thou that there is one God, thou doest well, the devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seeing, how that, seeing thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works faith was made, per, faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. For he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. 
For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, as you read down through those verses, there are two interpretations that are most commonly given for what those verses are all about. I want to give you one today. I'm going to give you the other one next week and then talk to you about the, uh, which one is right or if either of them are right. Uh, the first uh, interpretation comes from the, the workspace crowd. And what they say from this passage is that Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ for salvation is not enough. In the interpretation of this crowd, uh, salvation comes in two parts. For you to be saved, first of all, you place faith in Jesus Christ. And then number two, you do the works that are required to keep that salvation. So in their interpretation of this passage, salvation is dependent upon two people. It's dependent upon Jesus Christ, and it's dependent upon you. <laughs> you both have to work together. Jesus Christ provides salvation to you, and then you, as someone who's received that, now have to do the works that are required to keep that salvation. Salvation is dependent upon me once I trust Jesus Christ. That is based on such verses as verse 14. What doth the prophet, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works, can that faith save him? Verse 17, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Verse 20, uh, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Uh, verse 24, ye see then how that work by works a man is justified and not by faith only. And verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Faith in Jesus Christ gives us our salvation. Our works keep our salvation alive. Now, uh, it's not always clear what those works are supposed to be. I've talked to many of these folks over the years who believe that works are part of your salvation, and you ask them what you're supposed to do, and they can't always tell you. I mean, number, verse 15 tells you to be good to your fellow man, so that's one of them for sure. Beyond that, they're not always real clear what it is you're supposed to be doing, or how much you have to do, or when you've not done enough. I'll tell you this, maybe you have. I've never met one person who believes they've got to work their way to heaven, whoever thought they lost it. They're always saved. They're always doing enough. It's all those other people who aren't doing enough. They're always doing enough to keep their salvation. Uh, I've never met a person who believes they've lost their salvation, but they believe it can happen, believe it has happened to other people. It just never happened to them. And the fact is, most people who believe you have to work your way to heaven will say to you, you're really not going to know if you're saved or not until you meet God. That's what it all turns out. Uh, you've heard this thing, you know, before where you have the, you know, God has this balance up in heaven. And you go to the judgment, and God puts all your good works on one side and all your bad works on the other side, and whichever one balances out, that's where you go. And there's people who believe this, that if your bad works balance out, then you go to hell. If your good works balance out, you go to heaven. And they, but, but you won't know that until you get there. <laughs> so once you get there, the balance is set up, and you say, hmm, I guess I blew it. I didn't, I didn't do enough, or <laughs> somehow, by the luck of the draw, I made it, Whatever, how, however that goes. Uh, but the fact is, what they will say is you have to do work in order to keep your salvation. I'll tell you something else I've realized about those folks. I've not seen many joyful Christians who believe that. It's hard to be joyful if you're just not quite sure. <laughs> and you're always working to make sure. And you're never quite sure if you're doing enough. It's really difficult to find joy or peace or assurance in that kind of salvation. I remember years ago, many years ago, uh, I had a college professor who believed that a person had to work to stay saved. And here's what he, he had this elaborate system worked out. I, and I'll never forget this, this elaborate system that God had developed on how, how, to, how this all worked. And what he said was there are actually three circles that a person can be in. There's one of three circles. The first circle is the person who is saved and doing everything necessary to keep their salvation. That's the first circle. 
The second circle were the person who had been saved but had lost their salvation by not doing enough to keep it, but they hadn't done so much bad that they couldn't earn their salvation back if they did enough good works again. So they were lost at the moment, but they had an opportunity to do enough good works to get themselves back into the first circle. The third, third circle are those who had lost their salvation and who had sinned so drastically they could never get it back. They were done for. Now, the verses he used were these verses out of James. He, he used these for the first two circles. And for that third circle, those folks who lost it and could never get it back, uh, he used Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. Uh, it says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. And what he said was those folks in that third circle had fallen away so far they could never work their way back. They had been condemned to, to, to hell because they sinned too much and God simply could not save them after, the, after all they'd done. So that's, how what, that's one way for this passage to be interpreted. Uh, next week we're going to talk about the other way to do that. But here's what I want you to see from this tonight. Uh, this, what I just presented to you, I hope you don't believe what I just gave you, by the way, because that's not what this passage means. <laughs> it's not telling you you've got to work your way to heaven. What this does show us is there are folks who either taught or who decide that what some doctrine is out of the word of God, or what some, I should say, some doctrine they want to believe, or they think the scripture teaches, and then they find every scripture possible and twist it and bend it and manipulate it in some way to make it say what they want it to say and supports their opinion. Now, we can all be guilty of that. But in this particular case, that's what's happened here. Uh, and what you get, every time people twist Scripture, the end result is heresy. <laughs> it's untruth. When that Scripture is twisted and not allowed to say what it says, you're going to get some false doctrine as a result of all that. Uh, and as we continue on, you're going to see uh, what you do with the Word of God is take it as it stands. Just take it for what it says. Don't try to privately interpret it. Don't try to make it support your view. Just let the word of God say what it says. I guarantee you, 99.9% .9 of the time, if you'll do that, you'll find out what God's trying to say to you. Otherwise, what we're doing is what Peter talked about in 2 Peter 3.16. Uh, he says, which they, uh, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scripture, unto their own destruction. If you take that book and turn it enough and turn it enough and turn it enough, it's going to destroy you one way or the other. <laughs> Destroy that book, sooner or later you're going to be the recipient of that same destruction. Uh, you'll destroy the foundation of your faith. You'll destroy the foundation of your belief. You'll destroy the foundation of your hope and your peace. You'll destroy all that if you choose to rest Scripture and make it say what it wants to say. So we take the Word of God as it stands and let the Word of God speak, and God will interpret that for us. Next week we'll talk about the other interpretation and then talk about what James possibly is really saying out of these passages.